In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dralakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in: three one zero four four one zero five five five. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or to suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify. And Apple Podcasts again. The studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Before I get started, I just had to share um, how heartbroken, angered, disgusted I was seeing the news of children, schoolgirls being poisoned in Iran. Um, it just was. I guess there's it hasn't stopped the the stories that we keep seeing that make us upset, angered hurt but this one really was painful to to read the stories and see videos of parents and and things that were going on it was really really heartbreaking and um, in some ways you're shocked but in some ways you're not because um, the government has done so many horrible things and continues to do them that you don't get so surprised but sometimes you just can't imagine how do you poison your own young girls and and somehow I don't know how they justify uh, what's happening, but it was just, yeah, very, very painful. I'm sure many of you have been seeing that news and having similar reactions, but just didn't want to ignore that. And I hope the international community will continue to take more notice. So I hope you'll share this news. Um, it's really, really, really heartbreaking. So just wanted to make sure I mentioned that to start the show today. Um, let's go to a caller. We have a caller on the air, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hi, uh, Dr. Fire, do you hear me? Yes, I do. Thanks for calling. Hi, I'd like to ask your opinion about psychedelic therapy and see how it's used in a modern therapy sessions and mm-hmm. how it can help uh, patients with anxiety, depression, and other types of symptoms, if you can sure. talk to me about that. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is a very a big topic when we look at psychology psychotherapy psychiatry treating mental illness and it's uh, you know there's no short answer to it because it involves so many different things one book I, I would highly recommend there's a book called how to change your mind by michael pollan i think it came out in 2019 or so or 18 uh, but i think it, for me it was very eye-opening going through the history of of psychedelics so psychedelics includes things like um, psilocybin, which also called magic mushrooms, LSD, ketamine can be considered related to. Sometimes it might not be quite as hallucinogenic or having those psychedelic properties, um, but psychedelic drugs make people lose some sense of conscious awareness or uh, connection to what they're conscious of um, in a way that can usually feel quite good, but it's also can bring up some. Um, negative feelings if you're not careful as well. So what we have to be careful about is anytime we talk about something like, let's say, psychedelics, the feeling could just be, are they good or are they bad in a very um, blanket kind of a way? But the truth is they're definitely not all good and they're definitely not all bad. 
what we do see is that the way we saw them was much worse than they are, and that I will, I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but definitely it's not something that, okay, if we talk about it, that it can be good for mental health or be used in mental health treatment. Everyone should just go do it on their own, something I'll also talk about. But I did want to look up just the more standard definition of um, psychedelics. So there here, uh, this is just off of Google um, from the NIH. It's a powerful psychoactive substance that alters perception and mood and affects numerous cognitive processes. So um, that's the part that alters perceptions. People who are on psychedelics will often experience seeing things. Um, I mentioned that book, Michael Pollan. Um, he, he actually has three experiences himself that he describes in great detail what they were like. And one of them that always stood out to me, I couldn't forget, is when he said during one of these psychedelic experiences, he went to the bathroom and instead of... Um, peeing he saw like a it was like a stream of diamonds that he was uh seeing instead so people have these interesting experiences um that can be again good and bad which i'll get into so looking at the history of it and i know i know you asked me something specific but if you don't mind i'm giving kind of more of a general yeah, background sure. as well but so um well psychedelic plants and have been used in um, traditional healing ceremonies for long before they entered the Western medicine landscape at all. So we see ayahuasca and other types of ceremonies that uh, indigenous groups have used using these um, types of plants that create psychedelic experiences. So I will be sharing what we've seen in the Western world, but it's important to keep in mind they are newer to the Western world, but they are um, not new to the world and, and humanity in general. But uh, when we look at the Western world, there was lots of research being done in the mid 1900s, like 40s, 50s. But what happened was, and again, really to get the full history, and I don't remember it so well, but I'll share some pieces of it. You should read that book and others like it to get an understanding of what happened. Um, there was a lot of research being done on how psychedelics can be used for treating addiction, treating uh, depression or anxiety, and people were also taking it recreationally. And so this led to this r big movement towards using psychedelics in all sorts of ways. And Timothy Leary, who was a Harvard professor, he was one of the leaders of this movement. Controversial in some ways, he might have taken it too far, but he also was really punished in ways that seemed unfair. Uh, Richard Nixon was talking about him like he was like the number one enemy of the country. And I think he actually called him something like that. So that shows how threatened people felt. And so what happened was there was a huge backlash in that around the, I think it was 60s, 70s, that turned psychedelics to a the most um, restricted type of drug, which meant that you can no longer do research on it. And so then for several decades, there was no research on psychedelics or especially not in the United States and maybe underground, but it couldn't be done in any type of institution because you could not uh, have access to them and, and use them. And I also myself had my own um, mind made or my mindset was very different a, a decade ago, even reading before reading this book or around that time, five, six years ago, because I'd heard the things of psychedelics being so dangerous and uh, being permafried, like this notion that maybe you take uh, a psychedelic one time and you never come back or you never come back fully. Um, 
or you know people do really crazy things or they'll jump off a building and things like that and and there are some scary stories people have had and as i was saying before they're not all good or bad or it's not that everyone should take them people who may be either experiencing have schizophrenia or some kind of psychotic symptoms or issues or may be prone to that so if you have a family history of it and might be susceptible to it you might want to be more cautious and even i don't want to give you all the reasons why you shouldn't take it because i don't know them off the top of my head and it would be important to look into that so again even if i talk about in a few minutes all the positives that are possible or have been found it doesn't mean it's good for everyone and that there's no potential harms for anyone either so we have to be mindful of that nonetheless when uh, yes go ahead yeah i was i was talking uh, there for yeah. a lot yeah uh, i just wanted to ask you this uh right now fda is looking into it to get it approved so who was that sorry fda oh fda yeah okay federal drug yeah, administration so uh -huh. it's looking into psilocybin mda mdma and lsd yes and michael Pollan actually has a documentary mm -hmm. on netflix about his book that's right and the name of this documentary is how to change your mind mm -hmm. and i watched that entirely yes so i've seen it too the reason why i'm bringing this up is because uh, I have tried SSRI before, mm -hmm. and I've consulted with, with a natural medicine doctor, and he referred me to somebody who's done psychedelic, psychedelic therapy sessions before, and mm -hmm. now I'm just completing my research. Yeah. So doing it in a professional setting with somebody who's done it before, mm -hmm. would it be something that can be healing? And, sure. Uh, so, um, yeah, short answer, I would say yes. When you say can be healing, but as you just heard me talk for 10 minutes, you can see I probably won't give you a short answer, but definitely short answer, yes. Um, and, of course, that's, like you said, professional who will make sure there isn't any reason that you might be at risk or it could be not safe for you and any of those things. So I'm sure you would be doing that if you're going through a professional. And that brings up, I do want to mention this, I, I know I'm talking to you, but to also the listeners out there, that one of the things that's been found to be very important when it comes to psychedelics is what is referred to as set and setting. So the set is the mindset of the individual who is about to take the psychedelic, and the setting is the, the place the context, who is there, if there's someone, one or two people who are not taking the medicine, who can be there to take care of the person, make sure they're okay. Those things are very important because um, people do have beautiful experiences on their own, but sometimes when people have what you might call a bad trip, it's usually if they take it, maybe they're not in the best state of mind and they go out into the forest by themselves or with other people who are also taking it and then might have a really bad experience and not feel like they can get out of it. Um, and again, as I said, many people have had nice experiences that way too, but it's much riskier. So I wouldn't recommend that at all. Um, but talking about what you're saying in a controlled setting with professionals who are not just professionals, the professionals trained in psychedelic therapies, which is now emerging, as I was saying, kind of getting to the history in this last uh, decade or two, we've seen a huge resurgence where research is being done at top institutions and seeing the, the benefits for so many things. You mentioned MDMA has been shown potentially very helpful for post uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We're seeing um, so many possibilities with psychedelics. So again, it's possibilities doesn't mean it helps everyone, but it can be very helpful. But so doing it in a professional space, 
uh, with professionals who are trained, I think can be very helpful. And it's it's a world that I am learning more about. And I'll share with you because I uh, discussed this on my show back in September. I myself did a session of ketamine-assisted therapy, and I thought it was very powerful and very meaningful, and I could see it being helpful. Again, you want to talk to professionals before you go into that. Uh, I thought it was healing and, and could I could see the benefits it could have for others as well. So um, I very much would not discourage you, and I would encourage you if your professionals and your who have been helping you have made this recommendation. To me, I don't see a reason to tell you not to do it. Awesome. Thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah, I wish you the best with that. Um, I think it's really, a, it's a, we're going to see more and more research. I mean, you've, you saw the documentary, which is, yeah, based on the, the book and um, extends on that in some ways. It, I think we're going to see a revolution in, in psychiatric treatment that's related to psychedelics. But again, there's no magic bullet that if you take this, it, it, you know, it's going to help everyone. But I think there's a lot of uh, potential here. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Sure. Thank you for your call. Good luck. All right. Um, yeah, just some last thoughts. on. And as I was saying, um, people do take psychedelics on their own. And you will definitely hear people that will tell you their amazing stories. I'm not here to say that's not possible. But I would encourage, if you're curious about it, to really consider approaching it with professionals who have been trained and also will just be there with you to go through this process. And um, the book, How to Change Your Mind, the title can have multiple meanings. One is, of course, that psychedelics can feel like they change your mind when you take them. All of a sudden, you have this altered consciousness, altered perception, uh, and, and you might have ego death where you lose this sense of yourself, which actually can feel quite beautiful and feel like you're interconnected with all of humanity, all of the universe, which is um, quite nice. But another, I think, way to look at that title is how to change your mind about psychedelics, which is what it was able to do for me, because for me, it was just these crazy drugs, acid and things that people do to, you know, mess up their brains and have these really bad experiences or, you know, all these negative, negative things. And it helped to change my mind and open me up to seeing that, okay, maybe that's not the case. And especially he outlines the history makes you see how it got this type of reputation and connotation for people of being something so harmful when actually um, it can have some very good benefits. The side effects are minimal. Doesn't mean there's none, but minimal, especially compared to most medications. And oftentimes a short-term use or a few uses can have a long-term positive effect. So um, I say that not to say it's this, it's going to solve every problem because I know sometimes people hear this and they think of a there's always a new thing that's going to fix everything, and really there isn't going to be that. But there, um, it is important for us to explore different modes and modalities of treatments and different even types of treatments that we maybe thought could not be helpful or were just people doing recreational drugs but might have benefits uh, medically, psychiatrically, and, and things of that sort. So I'd recommend the book, and as he mentioned, there's a documentary on Netflix. I think it's four parts. Uh on Netflix, yeah, that you can check out as well. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. With the previous caller was talking about psychedelic therapy, psychedelic-assisted therapy, a new, in some ways, as far as becoming more mainstream, 
um, type of treatment or whole school of, of treatments that are that are coming about. And as I shared my own understanding and feelings about psychedelics have changed over the recent years. And that took some time because I, it was so solidified for me that they were these bad things that um, really just were going to hurt people and couldn't be helpful. And I think even still that residue remains for me. I'm so much more open when I uh, seeing the research and the results and the experiences people have had that have been so healing and helpful have definitely impacted it. But that residue, I don't think, has gone away completely of how negatively I saw psychedelics. I even remember when I started hearing about the therapies several years ago, it was kind of like, oh, come on, these people who are on the fringes, like making something up just to be extreme or just an excuse to take the drugs or some, you know, justifications I could come up with in my mind. Um, but, but it was really hard for me to accept that these were really legitimate types of treatment. And now I see that I was very wrong, that um, there really is a lot there, that it really can help people feel some uh, have some really lasting types of changes. You do see some people with one experience have lasting change even months or years later. And that is always one of the issues with lots of types of medications is that they can have short-term effects or only work while you take them or even only work for a short time. So it is a very promising area. So I, I do encourage you to look into it. And so related to that, it's about you know, I wanted to talk more about keeping an open mind um, because we we think we know what we know until we realize we didn't know what we thought we knew or we think we figured something out until we realize we really didn't. And it is a another one of these balancing acts. I'm um, really big on this theme of balance being one of the biggest challenges of life in general, of every aspect of life, of how you live your life. How do you spend your time? We talk about work-life balance, um, but I think there's more to it than that. It's just like life balance because work-life balance even already presents it in a certain way. But just balancing everything you need to do in a given day. So I can say exercise is good. Meditation is good. Uh, spending time with your family is good. Reading is good. Um, maybe working and doing something that makes money is good. Learning a new skill is good. Art is good. All these things. Community service is good. Spending time with your kids is good, your loved ones, your friends. All of these things are good things. But you only have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and however many, however many weeks you have to, to live your life. And so you have to fit all these things in and how much and when. And I do think it's actually uh, quite challenging. And if you don't think about it, you're making a decision anyway. You're spending your time some way. It just matters how deliberate you are and how you're spending your time and utilizing your time and what is in your life and what is not in your life. So um, I think in every aspect of life, there's these balancing acts that we have to have. And even in different characteristics, we experience as human beings, taking care of yourself versus taking care of others. Sometimes we can make it seem so simple, but it's not that simple. Yes, I got to make sure I'm okay. But if I have a friend who just lost a loved one and is devastated and they want to talk at two in the morning, it might not be right for me to say, well, you know what? I still have to make sure I get my seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. So um, we're going to have to talk at 2 p.m. tomorrow or some other time. I might make a sacrifice and then the next day I'm sleep deprived, but think that that was the right thing. So even living a life of balance can often mean accepting losing balance for some time. 
it's it's really complicated. So uh, this is another one of those about having an open mind because we have to have some level of certainty or some level of um, making a decision to go forward to take a behavior, take an action. So if you are sick and you want to make a treatment plan, of course you might recognize that you can't know for sure what's the best one, but you have to take an option and go because every minute, every hour, every day, you don't do anything that itself is choosing a treatment, which is not to do anything. And so you have to, even with uncertainty or some degree of uncertainty, make a decision and go forward and and choose something. And so when we even think about things, we, of course, have to try to understand things and concepts and frameworks that make sense to us. So there has to be some level of that uh, structure, but we still need to have the flexibility to be aware that I don't, I can't be so sure. I can't know for sure that I'm right about this. This is just my understanding of it. And so it sounds easy because it says, well, yeah, of course, think something until you get evidence that contradicts it and then think differently. That's basically what we want to do. But it's much harder than that because we have lots of feelings attached to what we know about being wrong, about the anxiety of not knowing, and all those things will affect how we take in new information. So uh, I said being wrong. No one likes to be wrong. Um, I, when Parham brought up the story of Daniel Kahneman uh, last week when we were giving a talk, and he said how um, he you know, will be at a conference and he wants to learn things, or someone one time pointed out something to him that he was wrong, and he said, thank you so much or he was giving a talk and it made him realize he was wrong. Thank you so much for making me realize I was wrong about this, which is not usually what we think about. We usually think of being wrong or figuring out that we are wrong, being a bad feeling. But he was actually so grateful to this person saying, you helped me realize I was wrong about this. But in general, we don't like that feeling to be proven wrong. It doesn't feel good. And so if we're genuinely going to be open to new information, we have to be open to acknowledging that we were wrong or we didn't quite know, or what we thought was true turned out to be untrue. And that's something that we have to be open to, to deal with that. It might still feel bad or not good, um, but the less we attach ourselves to being right and to not being wrong, and to even having this mindset that a smart person, a good person isn't wrong, we will have an easier time of taking in new information. So that can be an important piece to keep in mind, that a very intelligent person is also wrong all the time or very often or quite regularly. And that's one thing we can hold on to to realize that if I'm wrong here, doesn't mean I'm dumb or doesn't mean I'm not smart or intelligent. It just means I was wrong here. And if we take a step back from that, we realize how wrong it is or how stupid it would be to be wrong, but not accept it because we wouldn't want to be proven wrong in that instance. We're being wrong again. So, um, we have to have that acceptance of, I, can, I am wrong about many things. So right now, me talking to you, I believe a lot of things, think a lot of things, have ideas and opinions about things from even tastes and likes to athletes to um, social issues, political issues, um, literary issues, whatever it might be. I have lots of feelings and beliefs and thoughts and opinions. Those I definitely have. But... I can have the humility to recognize that these are the ones I have now based on my experience and what I've gone through and how I've reflected, contemplated, and thought about things. But they aren't the truth. And if you come to me in one year, 
hopefully there have been some changes because if there haven't been any changes and what have I been doing in that year? Have I not been thinking about things, learning more things, learning new things? It would make sense for them to change. So we would be better off recognizing that intelligence means coming to some decisions, understanding things, but recognizing where you are wrong. Someone who's intelligent will be more likely to acknowledge they are wrong than someone who is not intelligent. And that's something that I would encourage all of us to to keep in mind for ourselves, but how we look at other people. That someone who's very, very smart will realize when they're wrong and tell you, well, you know what this was? I made a mistake there. You made me see that I was not right about this. And that is actually a sign of intelligence, a sign of um, intellectual rigor that I can look at something and see where it was not right. Now, I say it's intellectual, and it is, but it really is coming more from an emotional space of handling being wrong. And it seems simple, but we've none of us like it. I don't like it. Even right now, I know I'm talking about these things, but if you came to me and said, you know, in these last five minutes, you said these things and they weren't right, I will have a little spike of, ooh, that doesn't feel good, or I made a mistake there. It doesn't feel good, but it's how much we get affected by that or let ourselves feel it and, and how much we let that hold us down and the more we recognize that it's okay and we need to actually acknowledge that the better we'll be at acknowledging when we're we are wrong we made a mistake another thing is dealing with that anxiety of not knowing we'd like to be certain we know that this is the way that this works or this is the law of this or the theory of this and it's true and there's nothing else to think about it but acknowledging that i'm not sure or we are unsure let's say even as a as humanity or scientific community, we're unsure about this or we haven't figured this out or now some new evidence questions the prevailing theory, that, that doesn't feel good. That creates some anxiety. It was nicer when we knew this is how it is or we thought we knew, but just that feeling is much better. And so we even see this in science. Um, Thomas Kuhn has a great book about this, and that's where the, the term paradigm shift comes in, that when scientists and scientific communities see new evidence that might contradict a prevailing theory, it takes longer than you would expect when you look back historically for the scientific community to change its mind because they're holding on to some of these beliefs or it's so-and-so's theory and they're so intelligent and brilliant and they're the superstar of our field, so how could they be wrong? And so, so many factors play into um, a scientific community changing its mind just like it's the case for individuals changing their mind. And we tend to actually be bad about this change, almost like a change blindness. I think there's some kind of concept or term for it, that when our minds change, we don't think they did. We're like, no, I think I always believed that. And so I was mentioning about psychedelics. My mind has definitely changed considerably since, let's say, a decade ago, especially, um, about how I viewed them. Um, but in other things, you know, getting to be a little bit older, you get to reflect on things in a way that you obviously can't have the opportunity when you're younger, seeing yourself change in how you view things, but also society change. One very uh, clear one here in the United States is gay marriage. 15, 20 years ago, it was very uh, controversial. Most people were against it. Some people thought maybe, but it was really something unpopular. But now if you look at statistics of Americans, there are, of course, still some people that are against it, but the overwhelming majority of people are in favor of it. And that's not just because old people died and new people came in. The same people have changed their minds. 
Um, I've seen many people whose minds have changed or shifted or become much more accepting about something like gay marriage. Gay marriage didn't change. None of the fundamentals changed of what's going on, but the feeling about this, the acceptance of it has changed. And even saying it in that way might make people a little bit uncomfortable that we're talking about moral issues. It's not about feelings. It's about what's right and what's wrong, or it's about how we should do things or the logical, rational way of doing things. But what we really see is that our stance on moral issues are very much a emotional decision or the initial step is a very emotional decision. You have a reaction to it. Should gay people get married? And you have a feeling. Then this lawyer comes in in your head and figures out the reasons why, but the reasons are things you come up with to justify how you feel, not the other way around. And so again, this can give us a dose of humility to recognize the things I think so strongly, or maybe it's you think you think so strongly about. It's more about these feelings and other things that are there. So I shouldn't look at them as some kind of ultimate truth or I figured things out. I want to be open to understanding more or recognizing the limits of my thinking or that my feelings or my perception of, of things is going to be affected by people around me. We love to think that I'm an independent thinker and every thought I have, I came up with and I'm not a sheep to follow the crowd and, and be affected by other people's opinions, but we all are all of the time. If you find out that 90% of people support something, you might want to tell yourself it won't impact you, but I can guarantee you it will. If I play you a song and I say you this was conducted by, um, or this was written by Beethoven, you're probably going to think it's better than if I told you it was written by someone who never got famous because they weren't considered very good. You might tell yourself, no, I'm going to just, you know, I'll, I'll, I can just feel it and I'll tell you, but we're going to be affected by, by these things. And so we want to be open-minded and something I've recognized is that everyone thinks they're open-minded. If you ask them, say, I'm so open-minded, but really what we mean is that I'm open-minded about the things I'm not sure about, but everything I'm sure about, I don't think I need to be open-minded about. So you're not open-minded about the sky being blue because you think you're definitely right. And we do this with types of moral issues or things we say, no, it's just, but that's just wrong for, for this and this to happen. Uh, since I use the analogy of gay marriage, I've worked with so many families and we talk about certain things and they have a child who is um, not straight. And we're talking about it like, no, I'm very, very open-minded, so open-minded ahead of all of my friends, but this is just wrong. You just can't have a, a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And so for them, it's just so clear and black and white. And they think they're open-minded because this seems like something that is very wrong and they think they know the truth. And so this is what I'm encouraging all of us to do is to recognize that even the things you think you shouldn't be open-minded about, at least challenge yourself a little bit to realize maybe I don't know what I think I know or I haven't found some ultimate truth and I can still maintain a level of humility and curiosity to better understand whatever it is that we're talking about. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to shift topics a bit and talk about a concept I want to call a Tarof takedown. And um, it's not a wrestling move, but it's a way that Tarof can take down our relationships or um, interfere with them or even end them. So Tarof for non-Iranian uh, listeners and also I myself, Farsi, is 
my actually was my first language, but now you wouldn't recognize that it was. But tarof is this Persian tradition or custom we have where we can be overly polite and hospitable in ways that actually aren't genuine and that we want to do them, but it's this expectation and custom of being overly polite and hospitable to one another. So, for example, you go to someone's house and they will offer you some tea and even if you don't even if you want to you say you don't want tea at least once or maybe twice and they keep insisting no no have some tea i really want you to have some tea and you say oh no no i don't i don't want any tea i'm fine i just had some tea before i came here and then eventually on the fourth time they say oh, okay fine i guess you know if you've already made the tea it's already warm and it's there i guess i guess i'll have the tea and you know since you offered it and so this is the kind of the expectation um here is with tea, but it could be with anything. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll drive you or you come, you know, you can spend the night here or you can do that. Or, you know, if you're tired and the guests are still there, you don't say um, you, you want them to leave. Maybe you'll grab their shoes or you'll do, do something that makes it seem that you're, you want them to go, but you would never ask them to go because, of course, you want them to stay forever and to just take care of them and do whatever they want. So there's this, this uh, custom we have. And then if you, like all customs, if you don't do them, you can face a negative consequence as far as in a social sense. So it's like you didn't even offer this or you didn't offer that or you didn't say no to this. And it it creates this interesting type of guessing game that we have. And I say interesting, but it actually I think is quite harmful, and which is why I'm talking about this Tarof takedown. Um, this guessing game, because if you offer me something, I don't know if you actually want to offer it to me. And if I say no, you don't really know if I mean no or actually want it, and if you don't say it the second time, I'm going to be upset with you. And so changing a custom is is actually very difficult because they're ingrained in cultures, but they definitely do and can change, so I don't want to say they can't. But I do want to shed a light on how harmful it could be in relationships because I've seen it um, in therapy work, seeing it play out, but also just in general how it can actually corrode relationships, not just a one or two time interaction. I've uh, never been to Iran and I hope things will change and there will be a revolution and that I will get to go there. Uh, I say that because I was going to share a story about what people have told me about Iran. I've never been. That's why I was saying that part where they say that often you're at a store and when it comes time to pay, the person says, basically, you don't have to pay. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to pay. And, and it's a store. And of course, you know, and of course, then you say, oh, no, of course, let me pay. And they might even say a few times, oh, no, you really don't have to pay. And then eventually you do pay. You're going to pay. Believe me, if you walk out, they would probably grab you. But the the feeling they have to give you is that, like, I don't even want your money. You can, you know, you're like family, even if they just met you. So that's how far it can go. But it's like this custom of showing that you don't need to, you know, you don't, you don't you just want to help them you're just there for them this perfectly hospitable kind of way of being but especially when we have more interactions with someone this can really corrode the relationship because what people do is you might be overly polite considerate go out of your way for someone in ways that they might not even want appreciate or notice and that starts to build this resentment so you're coming to my house and if i spend a thousand dollars on the food, but you don't really care. You would be okay with $10 worth of food, even though you didn't ask me because I did it for you because of this expectation that's created from the tariff. I might be, oh, I spent so much money on food for this person and 
I start to be upset with you. But you didn't ask me for it, but now I feel upset. And the other way around, um, you know, you you say, oh, like, you know, I'm coming from the airport. And I'm like, oh, I'm okay to come by myself, like take an Uber or something. And the person says, no, 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 I'll take you. And you say yes, because they offered it. And now they feel bad because they didn't want to give you a ride, but they thought they had to offer. And they thought you would say no. And so now they start to resent you, oh, this person that asks for so much or they you know they'll make it seem like you asked them to come to the airport basically made me come to the airport to take them home i can't believe they don't think i'm busy they don't think i have a life and so we start to resent the other person because there isn't this clarity of who wants what who who doesn't want what and we start going above what we feel comfortable with and we start we might start to dislike the other person a resentment builds up so if i stay up later than i want to because i think you don't want me, you don't want to be alone. And if I ask you, say no, stay, but I think you're saying it because you, you just are tarofing, you're saying it just to be polite, then I might stay and now I resent you because I, I stay up. If we go the other way, where we're both being genuine, then we know where we stand. We do have to deal with some different type of awkwardness at times where someone says, um, you know, I'd like you to leave or, you know, I'm getting tired. So maybe we can call it a night and maybe the other person feels rejected in some way or you know, something like that. So it's not to say if we do this, everything goes smooth and everything is perfect because no, humans will have interactions where you want different things at the same time or you want something in a different way and you have to deal with that. So it's just different problems come up, but they're easier to deal with because things are out in the open. We know what's going on rather than, okay, I'm spending the night here, but do they really want me to spend the night now? I'm going to spend my night in the bed, but I barely will use the bed because I don't want them to think I was, you know, doing too much. So I won't even move the cover. So when I leave, it looks like I wasn't here. And so we don't know, maybe actually they wanted you to stay or maybe they didn't want you to stay. So what I've seen happen is relationships start to break down because people are doing things for the other person that the person maybe doesn't even want. And then maybe they even feel bad. They might accept it. Okay, you did all these things. You made this food or you went out of your way. I might as well take it so it doesn't go to waste. And now it seems like you've basically asked for it. So I think it's unfortunate. It's a very sweet sounding thing, right? It's a very, to say polite, it's a pleasant word. When someone is being polite, it sounds nice that when you come, they want to offer you everything. And Iranians are very big on hospitality. And so if guests are coming over, you know, now things that you might not eat in your own home, now you'll eat in your own home because guests are coming and you have to have those things or plates you never use. Now you're going to use those plates because the guests are coming over. So there is something nice about this hospitality that we extend to one another. But I think unfortunately what happens is outside of, well, even in these situations, it can be harmful, but especially in longer term types of relationships, if it is governed by these types of rules of tarof, it just takes away from closeness, genuine closeness, where you're being more authentic. Because if you're tarofing, you're not being that real. We all know it. We all know it looks very nice, but everyone knows that it's it's fake to some degree. So because of that, we actually even lose the genuine kindness because we don't know if the person really meant it or not. So if someone really wants to do something for us, unfortunately, we take away some of the the kindness that we would feel because we don't know if they, they wanted to do it. Someone really, I'll come pick you up. It's an hour away. I'd like to because I care about you so much. That would feel so nice if you knew they were doing it genuinely 
just for caring about you. But if you think, well, I don't know if they're doing it because they think they have to tar off this type of extend this, you know, type of uh, action for me. Well, you can't even actually take that kindness in as well. So not only do we take away from some of the things that happen in other ways, we take away from the, the good that we would feel when people genuinely want to extend that kindness to us because we might discount it because we think it's um, related to Tarof. Persians do love a discount. So we, we might discount that thing. Oh, well, yeah, he's doing it, but how do I know they really want it? And now maybe we even feel guilty about it. So it's just something to be mindful of. It's very hard to change these things because if I'm tarofing and you're tarofing, okay, we both have to do this thing. And if one of us stops, it can feel very weird to the other person, almost like I'm being rude. If I don't do it anymore, you feel like, look at this person not reciprocating what I, the kindness I just extended. So it can be tough to, to figure out how to get there. And that's why I say it is challenging. It's not an easy thing. And they become so ingrained in us. I'm sure for many people, you go to someone's house, you don't think to tarof, it just comes out automatically that when they offer you, you say no, or if you know, you're the host that you're going to give them even more than you'd like to, you don't even think about it. You keep pushing and offering, have this, or, you know, we have certain sayings, people say, oh, my hands can't reach to give it to you. So please serve yourself. Or people love to say that they're not tarofi, even though they might be the most tarofi person. Like, you know, I'm not tarofi. So please like take whatever you want and, you know, make sure you, you feed yourself. Cause I'm really bad at this, you know? So it's a, a way of just like saying I'm not, but you're really doing those things. So changing it is hard. Um, but we can, you can do it and you have to be ready that if you do it again, people are going to at first think you're being cold or mean or rude, and you might get some of those looks or reactions from people. But if you do get to know someone longer term and they see that you're just being real with them, they genuinely, generally will feel more comfortable and they can be more real back with you. And that makes both people feel more comfortable. You don't have to feel like you're putting on a show you're just saying what you want or what you don't want. And as I said, those there's, conflicts come up with that too, because now rather than everyone being overly polite, which creates this buffer, actually that could be a good way of thinking about it. The Torah creates like this buffer, this bubble. So with that bubble, you don't really bump into each other in a bad way. Or if you do, it's soft. So that's kind of nice. If we take that bumper away, we can get closer to each other because we no longer have this bubble around us that creates a bumper and buffer. So I can be closer to you that feels good, but also we can conflict with each other more. We can bump up against each other now. There's nothing protecting between me and you. So the, the there could be small conflicts that I say, you know, I want to do this now and you don't want to do that. Or um, I'd like more food and you don't have any more. You don't want to make it for me or whatever it is. Or I want to go there. You don't want to go there and you don't want to just say it to make me happy. Um, but it can be important to keep this in mind because as I said, the tarofing in a longer relationship especially. One, as I was saying, it won't even allow for closeness in general. But two, it won't um, allow for you to genuinely get very, very close with someone where you really get to know them and to have a more authentic, closer relationship. And I think it's not to say in Iranian relationships we can't have genuine closeness. Of course we do. But I do think that things like Tarof can take away from some of the possibilities we have to actually be closer with one another, to take away some of that feeling of like fakeness and be like, just more real, like, oh, actually, I didn't want to even do that. And we might even laugh about it and then just enjoy each other's company. But everyone feels like they have to play part of this, this show. We're playing a character more than really being ourselves. So be aware of the, the Tarof takedown. It could take away the closeness and that you can have in a relationship by making you resent one another because you're being overly polite and overly considerate 
and you feel like you're doing more than you'd like, you won't feel good over time. Okay, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Switching topics a bit to dating and relationships. Um, I'm going to talk about something that uh, a, a term or phrase that I've, I've heard and even in saying it, I might give people the same experience of what it is. Let me just explain it to you. So maybe you've heard people say uh, someone does something and they say, I got the ick, like I-C-K. And it kind of relates to being disgusted by something. You say like something is ick or icky. That means it's disgusting. Um, and I, as I said, me just talking about it might give people the ick because I think it's something that is uh, I'm a little bit out of the demographic of people who use that term. But I've, I've seen it come up in dating that people will say that they liked someone, they started dating someone, and then they did something, said something, and then they got the ick. And for some people, the way they say it is if they have that, they got the ick, they had this feeling of being, you know, turned off, disgusted by them. It can make it that they're just done with that person. They can't see them differently again. And so I say, oh, I got the ick, and now they can't see them in a romantic or sexual way. Let's say it's someone they know or they've been dating, and then they end things. And so, of course, I can't tell someone be attracted or stay attracted to someone that they are not. But when I hear these things, and of course, someone could do something that is a deal breaker for us, or we just can't be with them. But often you'll hear stories where people say they got the ick, where it's something fairly trivial or minor. And to me, it does ring of a sense of going away from closeness or intimacy or having an unrealistic expectation or idealization of what a partner should feel like or what we should feel like in a relationship where we always feel attracted or or good or feel like we're so into them because I don't think that is realistic. And what came to my mind is when we talk about this other person and they I got the ick so I should just no longer talk to them, be with them or see them in a romantic or sexual way. But if we think about ourselves, we give ourselves the ick from time to time. I don't want to say all the time, but we'll do things that we feel embarrassed about or maybe slightly ashamed about for in the moment or might make us cringe. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that or I did that. Or you look at yourself in the mirror. Sometimes I wake up and I look in the mirror and it looks like I got electrocuted while I was sleeping. My hair is standing on end. And so we might have a moment where you look at yourself and you're definitely not looking your best or you do something and you're not at your best and you might feel that type of, you probably won't call it the ick, but you might do something that makes you feel uh, like, oh, that was, that's not great. And so I, I say that to recognize that if we hold this expectation and the standard for our partner of something that's unrealistic for a human being, we might end up saying no or or saying goodbye to some potentially very good partners or people for us. So you might get the ick for a moment, but don't think of it as something that's black and white or that changes that person forever. As I said, I can't tell you what to feel and you might continue to feel that way. But I do sometimes see it as a way of distancing ourselves from someone we are getting to know. And so transitioning from that, when people are dating and in therapy, you get to talk to people about all sorts of life experiences and adventures and journeys that they go on, which really is quite fascinating. And there is this cliche statement you often hear therapists say that they learn so much from 
their clients, but it really, really is true. I can't stress that enough that through uh, hearing their experiences, what they do, what they go through, how they responded, how they reacted, my own thoughts and feelings about what they say, you learn so, so much and you get to learn so much about different areas of life that you probably wouldn't have gotten exposure to or you definitely can't experience everything yourself, but you get some exposure to it through your clients, which can be uh, fascinating as well. But seeing people date, what can be interesting is um, how people feel going into a first date or meeting someone new. And so like most things, we see a, a wide spectrum a wide spectrum on a variety of factors, but one that I'm focusing on related to this is how excited they are, how hopeful they are for the date. And you see a wide range. So on one end, we have the very pessimistic side where it's like, oh, this is going to, you know, uh, it's a waste of time. Why am I even going? Oh, they did this. When we texted, they said that. Uh, I don't even know. Of course, it's not going to work out. Why should I think this one will be any different than the others? And this very pessimistic view of it's just not going to happen. It's not going to work out and looking for the negative things, which I'll get into. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have people who might be too hopeful and optimistic and excited. Oh my goodness, I can't wait to see them. Maybe this is going to be the one. I can already feel something. I saw their pictures and I felt something. Oh, they like dogs. I like dogs or whatever, some some trivial thing. Or um, I think this could be the one. This is it. And they might be on the other end of the spectrum. So that's the too optimistic side where they're so almost sure that this is going to be something good. And as you can imagine, generally, we want to be somewhere more in the middle, not overly pessimistic and not overly optimistic, because then we set up expectations. And the expectations, of course, one, they might lead to us getting hurt. Let's say if you get your expectations up too high and it doesn't work out. But expectations also affect our perception, what we see. If you think this is the one he or she is going to be the one, then you might ignore red flags and you might amplify the good things. And the, again, this, oh, we both like dogs, which is like most people like dogs. So there's things that you might hold on to and make bigger that are the good and the small you might do the opposite. And that could affect what you see, that you actually are not assessing and evaluating this person as a, a dating partner for you. You're doing it with some rose-colored glasses. On the other end of the spectrum, the pessimistic person might have, I don't know, brown colored glasses or some uh, negative kind of view that they're looking for the negative and the, oh, see, they showed up three minutes late and that just probably means they're not the kind of person you can rely on and I don't want to get into so something with someone that I have to take responsibility and blah, blah, blah. And the good things, they might downplay. And so related to this concept of, of the ick, I've seen with many people, not just clients, but this sense that you could tell they're so afraid to get close, and that's where that pessimistic side can come in, it is a protection, that they're looking for the negative things so much that they'll tell you a story, yeah, you know, I messaged them and they made this joke and it was such a stupid joke. and. Okay, it doesn't mean it's, the joke had to have been good, but to then jump to a conclusion that because they made a bad joke, they're either inappropriate or awkward or bad people or not funny, that's a lot to say based on one joke. But we can see that there is a protective element of looking for the negative, which can seem peculiar. Why would someone want to expect things are going to go bad? 
well, one, they don't want to get their hopes up. That can be um, painful, as I was saying, for the person who's optimistic. They might have to be careful about that. You get your hopes up and you get let down. That doesn't feel good. It does feel like a sting each time. But they also might be afraid that things are going to work out and then they get close. Even, you know, I've, I've heard people say like, oh, actually, I like them. And it's we, we kind of laugh about it because there's a way they're saying it almost like it's a tragedy, like it's something bad. It's like, ooh, I, I, I actually, I'm liking them. And so the reason why this is bringing up that type of a reaction is that they're actually afraid to get close and then that's the only way you can get hurt. So if you go on a first date with someone and it doesn't work out, yeah, maybe you're a little annoyed or frustrated or it wasn't a great experience, but you can't get that hurt by the first date. But if you like them and they like you and you start getting closer, the closer you get, the more you get hurt if things don't work out. And that can be scary, especially for someone who has been hurt before or who is thinking that, let's say, there's no way someone will really love me or get that close to me. So they're afraid to get closer. So there could be lots of reasons we might be afraid to get close. That could be scary and riskier, and it could even feel like we're going towards this thing that I know is going to not work out and hurt me. Or if they really get to know me, they will turn away or will not want to be with me. So the closer we get, the closer we get to that point and that moment, and that hurts. So I'd rather find reasons why I don't like them and make it not work to take away that risk. Now I have nothing to to worry about or nothing to fear because I'm just going to end it before it even starts. And so we might feel good that things don't work out because now we have to face that anxiety. And that's, that's often what people see is, let's say you want to go on a job interview or you want a job. And if you apply, well, if you don't get the job interview, you're like, ah, oh, you might be bummed out or you might be sad about it, but you don't have to deal with any of the anxiety of facing the job interview. And so There might also be a relief there. If you apply for the job or you get the job interview, you might be like, oh, that's great. There's a validation there. They liked me or at least liked my resume. But now you have the pressure and the anxiety of going on the job interview. And of course, I would encourage all of us to go into those anxieties and those pressures, uh, not to go away from them, but it's just the reality of it is that those feelings will come up. And so the same thing can happen with dating. If If it doesn't work out, You might be sad, oh, I'm going to go back and be alone, but at least that's the devil you know, being alone, being by yourself, whatever that is, not being that close to someone in a romantic sense. You know that feeling, and you can deal with that comfort, even if it's painful. But if it works out, now it's okay, now what do I do? Do I call them or text them, or how often? When do we see each other again? How do I know if it's good? What if it's wrong? What should I do next? Should I play it cool, or should I show them I'm interested? All these types of things will, will start to come up just in those initial stages. But then, of course, even more of we get close and what's going to happen then, we could see how some people go away from that. And so we really want to be mindful of this experience of what is pushing me towards things and what's pushing me away from things. So if you genuinely don't like something, you don't enjoy it, then it makes sense not to do it. But if you do like it, but the anxiety keeps you from doing it, then I would encourage you to go towards that. And so this is something we see with ourselves, but also with our kids, with someone we're trying to support. We're trying to get what's going on. If they say, there's this party, but eh, I don't want to go. Okay, if we really want to 
help them understand or we want to see what's going on, if we say, well, why don't they want to go? If we find out it's because they actually like to go, they'd have a good time, but they're nervous about going or they don't know how they're going to look or they don't know who they're going to talk to. If that anxiety keeps them at home, I would hope we can support them and even ourselves individually support ourselves to get there and experience it and face that anxiety rather than letting the anxiety win and we stay home. Or you have a child and they are on a soccer team and it's the soccer game and they say, oh, I don't want to go. And so a lot of parents just want to react to, okay, they don't want to go stay home or do I force them to go? But for me, it's always more getting into a conversation. Let's understand, well, why are they saying they don't want to go? And it's not just because we want to ultimately make them go or not go, but in understanding that why we'll understand our child much more. Maybe you find out, oh, you know, the coach said something mean last time. Yeah, I was running and the coach said I didn't run fast or I kicked the ball bad and I don't want to go see the coach again or something. Now we understand what's going on and we maybe can even do something about it. Or they tell you, I really don't like soccer. It makes me feel bad. I feel like you forced me to play or, or whatever other reasons that might be there. And ultimately, it's not going to determine if they go or don't go. I will always encourage towards going. But by focusing less on just are we going or not and focusing on what's happening underneath, we might get a better understanding of our child. And then from there, we can even help them more. Oh, you had an issue with the coach? Okay, you know what? what do you want me to come with you and we, we talk to the coach together about what happened? Or you can do it yourself and then I can talk to you after or whatever it is that you come up with together, you find a solution rather than just focusing on that do you go or you not go. But then bringing this back to the dating realm, if you have this anxiety about being close, and, and I should say we all have it to a degree, but it can be much stronger for some people. So if you recognize that in yourself, what you'll have to recognize is that because of that, getting close will always feel risky, not necessarily because the person is bad for you and is going to hurt you, but just because getting close feels risky to you. So you have to anticipate that when you're going on a date, if you're in that very, very pessimistic side of the spectrum, you will likely look for negative things that will make you get to say no, because that'll actually be a relief for you. You still have some desire for closeness that creates this ambivalence that you might go on these dates, but you're looking for a way to make it not work out. And even with some clients or sometimes if I talk to friends, I'll mention if they have this type of mindset that if they're dating someone to at least go on two more dates than they'd like to. I mean, if you really, really, really notice it's not a match, I understand. But if you're kind of on the fence and you know you lean more towards the negative, I would encourage you to go out one or two more times with that person to really get a more clear sense and, and understand what's going on there. Is it more my fear of getting close and my fear of getting my hopes up that's pushing me away and making me end things prematurely? Or is it genuinely we weren't a match? But give it a little bit more time if you're someone that finds the negative in people. And to go back to how I started the segment, this feeling of the ick when you are meeting someone, dating someone, and you have this moment, think of it more as a moment than a defining moment and characteristic. And remember that even someone you find very attractive will do things, say things, or look in a moment in a way that you might not, not find attractive or might give you that ick or that cringe feeling for a moment. But it doesn't mean that's all of who they are, just like you yourself will do things that you might cringe at or feel uh, are not so good. But I hope you won't obviously give up on yourself and see yourself in a bad way. You'll just say, okay, I'm human, and whoever you date will be human too. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. A few segments ago, I was talking about Taruf being overly polite and how it creates this buffer that avoids some conflict but also avoids closeness. And so I wanted to continue on this topic of avoiding conflict and actually trying to go towards the opposite, not trying to create conflict, but embracing and facing conflict that we don't want conflicts, but we know that they're inevitable in in relationships and human life, and we want to embrace them when they show up rather than to avoid them. And what I wanted to talk about is how we can model conflict for our kids, because it's something that I've seen, uh, especially if we're talking about Persian families, I was talking about Taruf, and it's not just this custom we do at dinner parties, it's part of our um, daily life to a degree. And so unfortunately, it has an impact, I believe, on how we view conflict and how much we embrace conflict. And so most of us, unfortunately, and I'm not just talking about Iranians, I think most people in general and most families in general, have not had good experiences with, with conflict in a healthy way. Even we hear that word healthy conflict, for many people might sound like an oxymoron. Conflict sounds unhealthy, sounds bad, so how can we say healthy conflict? But when we recognize, as I was just saying, that every relationship needs to have conflict or conflict will inevitably arise because people have different wants, different needs, do things in different ways, will rub up against each other the wrong way, will get frustrated with each other and express that and both sides will feel something. It's just an inevitable part of human experiences. When we know that it's there, what we're trying to look at is how to deal with it in a healthy way that actually doesn't make them toxic and so harmful and actually can lead to closeness. Because again, if you avoid conflict, we avoid closeness. There's a limit to how close you can become with someone if you're not willing to be authentic and to face those conflicts. And so many families have experienced, or many children and families have experienced, that conflict was this really scary thing. And so we often find as people don't have conflicts, hold everything in, say everything is fine, you're not allowed to say if you're upset or you're sad about something, but then all of a sudden you might blow up. And so it's held in until it blows up. And then what do you see? Look how bad and ugly conflict is. Someone was yelling and this, it was scary, it didn't feel good. And so it teaches us that conflict is a very scary thing, so it made sense to avoid it. So unfortunately, the more we avoid it, it still comes up. So there's no home that literally had zero conflicts in it in your whole childhood. But it's how comfortable you were having really those smaller fights that matters. Because if you don't, you're then going to have the bigger ones that will be ugly and then make you even more afraid of it. So you yourself as a parent have to take an inventory as you do really of all aspects of yourself when you're trying to see how you'll well, first even be as a partner, but then uh, be as a parent of your personality, things you're comfortable, not comfortable with, but taking an inventory of, of conflicts. How comfortable am I with conflict? How uncomfortable am I in avoiding it? How much do I... Uh, handle conflict well. So if it does come up, how good am I at dealing with it, at having the conversations needed to to be respectful, but listen, to share my point, all the things that might be related to conflict. How do I deal with that? And then so how might that affect how I am with my kids? Because if I'm um, 
okay with conflict, I'm much more likely to be okay with it and show them that. If I'm not, they're going to pick up on that too. And so what I often see in families, even when they're coming to therapy and trying to recognize how to deal with their kids, a philosophy of, philosophy of parenting I've talked about is that many parents approach it with a pain prevention philosophy of parenting, meaning that at every moment, just look at what gives my child more comfort, less pain, less discomfort, and I do that thing. So if they don't like something, we just stop that thing. If they're uncomfortable somewhere, we don't go. If they like something, we do it. And so it could be this very short-term type of a mindset, which comes from really this discomfort with the negative feelings and this discomfort with thinking, I'm allowing my child to feel bad. And that means I'm a bad parent. And so I should avoid that. So if my child is sad and I don't stop it, I'm a bad parent. And it also comes from the fact that we don't have a good relationship with those feelings. So we think it's so terrible to be sad. It's so terrible to feel uncomfortable that I never want my child to feel that way. But it's a very unfortunate philosophy and mindset to have for your kids because you won't actually allow them to grow. And you actually are teaching them that conflict and difficulty is this really scary thing because we run away from it. If we see it, we run as fast as we can the other way. Well, what does that tell us? The thing we're running away from is very scary. It's something we want to make sure we avoid. And so I see parents, they say, oh, my my, te- my child was having an issue with his teacher, so we switched the class. We put him in a different classroom. And it's like, whoa, that's that's a lot. Now, of course, there can be teachers that are doing really bad things, and I can get that, but I'm talking about just conflict. They're having some issues come up. And so what do you teach your child in that moment? You might think I'm just showing them I love them. I don't want them to be in pain. But you're also showing them that when you have a conflict with someone, you just run away. And so when you have a conflict with someone, it also means the end of the relationship. And how many um, family members do you have? And you probably have them yourself where you say you haven't talked to someone else in your family for 15 years, 20 years. And when you ask people, it's usually from some conflict that happened 20, 25 years ago, maybe you don't even remember exactly what happened, but ever since then, the relationship ended. And so, unfortunately, it's further reinforcement of this idea that a conflict leads or just causes the end of a relationship. It can't survive a conflict, which isn't true at all, but it is the truth when we deal with conflict in very unhealthy ways. So you might think you're protecting your child by putting them in another class, but you're actually showing them that if they have a problem with someone, well, that's it. The relationship is over. They're in trouble. Even with other kids, this happens. They have a, a disagreement with the kid and we move the move the class or do something where they don't have to see that child anymore. And that's a really bad uh, lesson you're teaching your kid rather than saying, okay, what happened? Let's understand what happened. First, I would recommend empathizing with your child, understanding why they are hurt or upset in their perspective on things. Once you make them feel understood and they feel more calm, then you can also help them by seeing the other person's side. This can be challenging, but if we're really going to have any kind of conflict resolution, there has to be empathy where we see the other person's side. We don't just see ourselves as perfectly right and them perfectly wrong. But you can help them. Well, what do you think the other kid, you know, whoever it is was feeling? What do you think they were thinking? Okay, yeah. And then you might explore how can we try to solve this? Is there anything we can do and support them? And also making sure now you don't do too much. Another thing I've seen so many times with uh, young kids is the kids will get in a fight, playing, doing something, and then 
the moms or the parents will talk it out for them. Oh, yeah, I talked to the other kid's mom, and now you guys are friends again. Go go play. And so the conflict was between the kids. You can't solve it as the parents. You even don't necessarily need to be there when they resolve it, but you definitely can't solve it because you've made things okay. So you need them to talk about it, them to figure out what to do, and to encourage them and show them you can do that. I'll support you, but I believe in you that you can figure it out. You can find a way to get through this. And and actually what you'll often find if you can get through that conflict, you'll be much closer with that person because you've went through something together, you understand each other better, you've learned about each other, and you've had this experience that will now actually bond you closer to one another. So it can feel scary, especially if you haven't had good experiences with conflict, but be aware of that. You might think it's catastrophic and a tragedy, but it doesn't have to be, and it's going to come up. Your child is playing on the playground. Things are going to come up, conflicts, issues, and we shouldn't think, oh, that kid said something you don't like. You never talk to them again. No, actually, you want to encourage them to go into that, even to, to stand up for themselves to say, I didn't like what you said or something happened that upset me. That shows them that they can do that, that they will do that in other relationships as well. Give them that space and that possibility. Because conflict, of course, as I say this, it can it can lead to the end of a relationship, of course. But most of the time it doesn't and definitely doesn't have to. And so especially we can recognize that when we look at most relationships, as I was saying with the hypothetical between the two kids, they can get much closer if they work through a conflict. And you've definitely, I hope you've had this experience of having a conflict with someone, you might even be very angry, very hurt, and the, the conversation might get heated at times. But when you come to a resolution, that feeling is so wonderful. There is this sense of being understood, of being heard, of feeling like the other person cares, of feeling like you've come to some kind of resolution or solution that gives you even more hope for going forward about whatever it might be related to. And you feel this intense closeness with that person if you work through that conflict in a healthy way. It is a wonderful thing. Even sometimes we'll say a relationship, you don't know what you've got till you've had your first fight. And, you know, it's a cliche type of thing. Um, but I think there's some truth to that or it has some value in a few ways. One is well, we got to see what it's like when you fight. And also you get to see the other side of someone. I was just talking about this taroffing, overly polite type of mindset. And of course, when you're on your first dates and you're going to be more polite and people do avoid conflict, um, rarely on a first date is there going to be a big fight. There isn't probably enough to even have a fight about, but there just isn't likelihood that that's going to happen. Over time, you will get there. You, you get closer, things come up. And now you really get to see a side of someone. How do they get when they're angry or they're upset? Um, are they rageful? Are they out of control? Are they disrespectful? Do they communicate well? Do they communicate poorly? You'll get to see a side of them that you won't likely see otherwise. So that can be good. So it does give you a sense of who you're dealing with and figuring out the relationship. But also you see how you as a couple deal with conflict because there isn't just one way to have conflict and people bring in different perspectives and experiences into it. And so that will affect how you fight as individuals, but also how you fight uh, as a couple. And so now you understand something. Okay, well, yeah, that was, it wasn't that good, but I think we actually, you know, did pretty good overall. And that being said, it doesn't mean that if you, your first argument fight didn't go well, you can't make it better. 
It actually reminds you of people's first sexual experiences. It doesn't mean you won't have a good sex life if that first sexual experience was not good. Things can be worked on. You figure each other out. You learn from each other. And you can make things better. So don't think that that first fight has to be um, indicative of how every fight argument goes on going forward. People grow a lot. They learn how to communicate better. They learn what their partner might get very hurt by, what types of things. Or they recognize there's something toxic in how I'm communicating that I got from my family or past relationships that's not good and I want to try to unlearn that. You can, if you have that willingness, uh, try to change those things. But it really is necessary and you can't have a close relationship without conflict in it. It has to be there. And so I've worked with couples that say, oh, we've been together a year, we've never had a fight, and I tell them I'm sorry to hear that. Because if you haven't had a fight for a very long time, it means one of a few things. Either um, you're not that close, so you haven't really gone that close to rub up against each other in ways or uh, irk each other in ways that might lead to an argument or disagreement, or one or both of you is holding things back, which is related to that. So you're upset, but you don't tell them, or they do something you don't like and you hold it in just to, to keep the peace or you're afraid of conflict or whatever it might be. So if you're never having arguments or disagreements, it's not a good thing. People sometimes hear that and think, I mean, you need to have these loud shouting fights. No, you don't, but you need to have conversations where you're upset and you're expressing that upset with your partner because it's going to come up if you're being genuine with yourself and genuinely getting close to one another. So as parents from a young age, you can show, show to your children, one, through your own conflicts with each other and how you deal with things that conflict is not scary, it's okay, and have healthy conflicts, but also in how they experience conflicts and how you respond to those to show them we don't have to be afraid of them, we don't have to shy away or run away, we can go into the conflict and actually be hopeful that we get to a better place, we want to be real and, and communicate with that person how we're feeling, but we can make things better. Conflict doesn't have to be catastrophic, it doesn't have to be something we're afraid of. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, uh, thank you so very much for allowing me to uh, to speak with you. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. Lockery, I am 71 years old, and uh, I'm about to make a decision for for which I feel really terrible and guilty. It is with regard to uh, my son. He's uh, about 42 years old. Mm-hmm. He will be 42 in about a month now. And uh, he has not been uh, responsible enough. He seems to have trouble uh, holding a job, or, or not being responsible about his own children. And uh, just to just to give you uh, uh, a little background, but at this point, uh, I am about, and my wife too, who is not uh, my son's mother, my current wife, we are about to make a decision to let him to be completely on his own, mm-hmm. uh, which really means that he will probably end up being homeless. Mm. And... Uh, this decision uh, or uh, that we are about to make makes both of us feel really bad mm, but yeah. yet i don't know anything else that 
I could do to to uh, to help him. What uh, what I have tried to do uh, in the past has not been really helpful. Um, to give you yeah. an example, about four years ago, I thought uh, if he agrees, and he said he would, to uh, see a psychologist, the counselor, and to uh, see if there is a diagnosis and uh, perhaps some treatment for his behavior, lack of responsibility, and so on. And uh, after I uh, researched and uh, uh, talked even with you on the radio about four years ago. Uh, when I called him back to say that, oh, I have now found someone who would be uh, talking to you and who would be able to help you to see what treatment you can have, uh, he, he really said he is not ready yet. And so I said, okay, so let me know when you are ready. And uh, so far, uh, mm -hmm. there has not been really any positive response from him. In other words, he yeah. doesn't want to be treated or see a counselor to help him. Okay. But, you know, based obviously on how you're talking, it's like you said, the guilt is there and you've thought about this a lot and it seems like you feel that the ways you've helped him, you're you're wondering if they're hurting him or if he needs um, some other kind of like a tough love or realization to see that he has to make a change and, and you're feeling stuck. But I can understand there's still going to be a lot of guilt. And even we can talk, we only have maybe like 10, 12 minutes, but even if we had longer, there wouldn't be a way I could give you a guarantee of this is the right thing or the wrong thing. And so that will make it even harder because we won't know for sure, but you can only make your best decision at any given time that is made with love and consideration, even though it might not feel like to the person it's loving because it's not what they want in the moment. So I, I could hear in your voice that there, it's not easy for you, but that you've come to this after lots of deliberation and we won't have time to get into all the things that you've done or tried and the ways you're saying he hasn't been responsible, but give me a better sense of what's going on. You said even you mentioned children, so I'm not sure if he's still married or not or what's going on there, but um, if you can give me a little bit more of the, the current situation. Uh, yes. Uh, to give you just a little background, uh, uh, I, uh, he was born out of wedlock. I had a relationship mm -hmm. with his mother when I was uh, quite younger. And uh, and I became a part-time father for him over the weekends. I would take him with me, and uh, it continued until he was uh, old enough that he didn't really wanted to be picked up on the weekends and so on. Uh, another thing that uh, I was aware of while he was in elementary, pardon me, middle school, he was diagnosed with uh, at least a mild form of, uh, of depression. Mm -hmm. And he did not want to take medication. Uh, in addition to that, uh, he was in a special ed classroom. So uh, I would imagine 
that he probably has ADHD. I say that because I also have been diagnosed to have ADHD and depression as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, with his girlfriend, he's had two children, but uh, he ha he's not seeing them and he has not been a father to them or uh, financially or otherwise. Okay. Um, so he has children, but he's not, they're not um, relying on him in any way financially, uh, and he doesn't have a relationship with them. Right. Okay. He doesn't see them. Okay. And uh, they don't see him, uh, and the children do not see him. I see. And so based on what you were saying, that if you don't support him, he'll be homeless, that tells me financially he's, is he not working? He's unable to support himself? He is not working. I believe he has uh, uh, a little uh, support from welfare. Mm -hmm. uh, he probably gets something to get by, uh, but he is not working and he has not worked, as far as I know, for some time. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, we, my wife, uh, had a property where he could live in that property without free of rent. And during these 10 years, he hasn't done anything to improve his life. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm not sure if that was a good decision about 10 years ago, but it was something that uh, my wife thought it would be a great idea for him to have a place mm -hmm. to live in. But uh, Yeah, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You know, it could have been, I mean, now looking at it, you get the sense that it m made him get, um, you know, feel like he doesn't have to work or do anything on his own. How does he, do you talk to him about how he's doing, how he feels about his life? Does he feel okay? Is he trying to change? What? Where is he at? He, uh, when I spoke with him, um, even today I spoke with him uh, and uh, about this, this uh, decision that we are about to make. He sounds very intelligent. He he's, uh, he sounds very good. Uh, he says that uh, it's tough. It's stressful. He can't find a job, or when he finds a job, uh, it's too hard for him. Um, so uh, from the conversation I have from him, it seems like he has some stress. Uh, he says he wants to find a job. And we know there are a lot of jobs out there, uh, but he doesn't have a job. Mm -hmm. So my, I, I don't want to argue with him or uh, say anything that would upset him, but deep down I know that he's not looking hard enough to find a job. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because when, when we go around, we see that everybody is looking for people to work and they are willing to pay 15 16 17 dollars an hour and uh, yet he's not working does and what's his professional and educational background he finished high school and he decided he didn't want to do anything mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, he did a little bit of plumbing with his uh, half brother and uh, that was for a period of a few years, right after he finished high school. It's about 22 years ago. And after that, he's been just uh, 
jobless, really, unemployed. So he hasn't worked for almost 20 years? If he did, uh, he probably did for a very short time, not holding to the same job more than maybe a few weeks. Okay. Um, now, to get your, you know, you, you want to cut him off financially. Is it that you think that will motivate him to do something or is it just you don't want to or can't do it anymore? Uh, financially, I could. Uh-huh. But I'm not sure if that would be uh, something that uh, that would help him, really. Sure. It seems to me that he, he's complacent. He's comfortable the way it is. He's not trying to improve his life. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to see your, your intention or the motivation behind it. And now, when you said you... Did you talk to him and say, this is what we're going to do? Or were you just discussing this as a possibility? Oh, no. I uh, I told him, frankly, that uh, uh, my wife and I are uh, my wife and I are planning uh, to sell the property. Actually, mm-hmm. it's my wife's property soon. And uh, uh, it needs to be remodeled before it's sold. And he would have uh, a little time to find a place to go. Uh, I uh, I was honest with him about this, and mm-hmm. uh, it was like giving him a notice that uh, so that he would be thinking about his next step. And I told him that uh, it would be out of question. He would not come here to live with us. Okay. That wouldn't be one of the options. Okay, so and what he was... Said he understand Yeah, that. okay, so I was going to ask. So he was okay with it? He was... He... Uh, yeah, he sounded he was okay with that. Mm-hmm. But okay. uh, from uh, my from knowing him, he he probably has no plan, and he probably has no place to go. And I am almost eight percent sure that he will end up being homeless. Has he ever been before? Has he, if he has been before, I was not aware mm-hmm. of it. Okay. So he never told me about that. So look, and, and when we got to briefly talk on the break, I mentioned was the last segment, and I actually wish we did have more time to discuss yeah. things further. And, you know, because obviously it's a heavy topic with lots of uh, different aspects to it, and you're trying to make a decision, or you've already made a decision. But I think part of why you're calling is about the guilt you have uh, about this, and as I said early on, we I can't give you an exact answer right. that this is the right or the wrong thing to do because these things are so difficult. It reminds me of people who who have a family member with addiction, and it's like, okay, how much do I support them, or how much do I make them try to hit rock bottom that might make them turn things around on their own when they see they have to make changes? And so, it's not clear what what's going to be the right thing. I always feel that even with tough love it, it could still come with support even if it's not financial of helping him with what you know let's say finding a job or whatever some other aspects of it so um maybe he still needs some help to get on his feet but he needs a little bit more of a push which you're trying to give him that you know if he doesn't do something he won't be on his feet he'll be on on his back he'll need to make some changes so 
it, it could still be a process. And it seems like you're saying he responded calmly. When when would be the date that he has to leave? How long from now? Oh, I'm well, approximately two to three weeks. Okay, that's not a lot of time. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, maybe he might want some support or help of even finding a place or looking or figuring out things with the job. Would you be open to doing those things with him? Uh, yes, to okay. to help him to find a job, yes. And I have tried in the past mm-hmm. uh, to help him to move out uh, uh, with those things. But I would not be willing to give him any money yeah. because I have noticed that he spends uh, money, I don't know where he finds it, on drinking yeah. and smoking marijuana. So let me say this because uh, uh, we are really running low on time, but I think, yes. and what I felt in your voice there, there is some anger too, which I can understand where you feel like you're giving yes, and giving. Right. Yeah. And so you have these conflicting feelings of this anger and guilt. So yes. you're angry and you're all like, you know, the heck with him, like, go, I've done so much for you. Then there's a guilt of, oh, but wait, if you, what if, you know, he's going through this and I should do more. So that's something that I would encourage you to try to reconcile and understand better. As I said, I have to basically wrap up in like 20, 30 seconds. Yes. Um, but that those conflicting feelings seem to be at play here where we definitely don't want you to, the anger makes sense and you want to acknowledge that it's coming from a very real place, but making sure it's not that anything you do feels like it's a reaction to the anger that or the resentment you've held in for so long. I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just giving you the, the scenarios. Um, and then the guilt could just be that from a tough love perspective, it's always going to feel a little bit harsh. It has that tough part to it that can feel guilty or that you're leaving him out to dry in some way. And, and it's a challenge. And so I, it seems like you've made your decision um, and I would encourage you to process those feelings, the guilt and the anger that is there. And it probably comes with a lot of things. Maybe even the guilt goes back further to his childhood mm-hmm. or other things, you know, things that you can reflect on. And I would actually, I do have to stop. I'm just looking at the time. Um, maybe another time we could continue the conversation. The decision was made, but as I said, the emotions are, there's a lot to figure out there, which might even help making the next choices you have to make. But maybe we can continue the conversation sometime soon. Uh, all right. I will try to uh, reach out to you again. Uh, sure. Soon. Yes. Thank you so much. I look very forward much. to it. Have a You're good day. You're absolutely right about my emotions. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I'm glad and hope we can talk some more. Take care. Thank you very much. Sure. I appreciate Bye-bye. that. And have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. Big thank you to Farouda here in the studio. Zan Zendegi Azadi.